Okie doke. Our last class. Just there is a final, just in case you didn't know. Uh, you need to know this. Um, if you have papers today, that's fine. If you take till the final, that's fine too. Um, so don't be anxious either way. Well, be anxious. Just don't be too anxious. Be slightly anxious. Be a little bit anxious. Um, good break? Nice to hear. Isn't it great to come back for one class? It's just like the best. It could be worse, I know. You could be coming back for like two months of classes. That would be much worse. Um, all right, so today we'll... Um, Today's our last class. We'll talk a little bit about Death and the King's Horseman. Um, I hope you thought it was amazing. Um, it's, I hope you also found it troubling in various ways, and um, maybe not quite in the obvious ways. Um, what do people think of it? Should we do one of those? Yeah, Hannah. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. You could figure out what was going on. That's helpful. Um, that always is helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I was gonna be like too new on Tuesday and be like all about cultural clashes. Uh huh. But it was really. I mean, it was about cultural clashes, but like it was also about a lot of like things. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, did you read the intro? Um, that is uh, Shoyinka's own intro to it. Okay, so that's it's really interesting to use the phrase cultural clash because what he says in the author's note, that's what I meant, is, um, and I think this is crucial, is um, this is, if you have the um, book, it's page three. Um, the bane of themes of this genre, he says, is that they are no sooner employed creatively then they acquire the facile tag of, quote, clash of cultures, unquote. A prejudicial label which, quite apart from its frequent misapplication, presupposes a potential equality in every given situation of the alien culture and the indigenous on the actual soil of the latter. So what Achebe were you particularly thinking of? Were you thinking of Things Fall Apart? Yeah. Yeah. Can you, how many people have read Things Fall Apart? Um, did you guys read it here or in high school? I think it's it's become a high school book, uh, which is good. Um, so someone who's read it, um, who wants to, I mean, you can, um, compare and contrast this to Death and the King's Horseman. What's similar about them? I mean, they're, they're both about, like, an indigenous people, and then European people come and invade, and um, don't really understand yeah, don't understand the culture that they are taking over and administering, and with the result that what do they do to the culture that they um, are taking over? Well, yeah, they enslave them um, or engage in the colonial equivalent of enslaving them. Um, but they also destroy, they misunderstand, misinterpret, misapprehend, and therefore um, destroy what are settled um, cultural features of um, the culture that the colonizers just have no idea how to understand. Yeah, Lily. Yeah, they're both set in Nigeria. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they both use a lot of proverbs. They both are about a central character who is, um, you could say, I guess, uh, very um, um, self-certain, very secure about his own um, position within a culture that then gets um, very badly unsettled and humiliatingly unsettled by the um, coarse misunderstanding of the invading colonizers um, who um, 
ultimately corrupt the main character. Um, part of what's going on in both works is there's a sense of um, guilt and corruption as a result of what in Death and the King's Horsemen are called the white ghosts of the British, Pilkings and um, the other um, English um, colonizers, the other English um, administrators. Um, yeah. Yeah, so we, it does go back and forth. That is, there are scenes in Death and the King's Horsemen that are only between um, Pilkings and Jane, and scenes between Pilkings and uh, the resident. Um, and there are um, therefore scenes um, in which the only characters on stage are white. And um, we are, since, since as we know from Shakespeare, as we know from Aristotle, all dramatic scenes, um, in some sense or another, about conflict, um, what that means is there's conflict among the white characters as well. Um, the conflict isn't major, but it's there. Um, there it's certainly the case that um, Jane Pilkings is more intelligent than her husband. Um, it's certainly the case that he's more, that, that um, Simon Pilkings, her husband, is more intelligent than the resident himself. Um, the aide-de-camp is um, something of a fool, that is Bob, um, is something of a fool, and there's a difference in their attitudes. They're not, um, they don't all have the same ideas. On the other hand, none of their ideas are really great. Um, even the best of the white characters in Death and the King's Horsemen, and that's pro would we agree that that's Jane, um, is the best of them? Would we disagree? Who would you put above Jane if you don't think she's the best of the white characters? So are we agreeing that she's the best? Um, she's the one who at least is um, least certain about um, what the males are doing, what the male whites are doing. Um, and least willing to jump to conclusions, least willing um, to think that everything will be fine, that, um, that, that the English have this, that everything is under control. Um, she's the one who, um, when Elysian's son um, comes and talks to them, um, she's the one who he really wants to talk to. There's tension between them, between Olinda and um, Jane, but Olinda also is um, to the extent that he is a character who has the effect of um, orienting our own moral judgment about other characters. And he certainly does play that role. Um, he and um, Ialoha both play the role of orienting an audience's moral judgment. We may not agree with their moral judgment, but we have to take their judgments seriously. And to the extent that he has that role, both his criticism of Jane and his semi-forgiveness of her or his sense of her as someone who is at least open-minded enough for him to go to her, um, make her, um, elevate her in our eyes. Part of the question there when I say elevate her in our eyes is who the hour is in Death and the King's Horseman. A question that you could ask about this play that you should ask about this play um, goes back to the question of the narratee. Um, and which is to say, um, who is the um, narr narratee for this play? Is this a play for a white audience or for an African audience or for a diaspora audience? When, you, when it comes to drama, the question of narratee that we talked about earlier um, in, this, in this course, talked about a lot in this course, becomes pluralized in a way that it doesn't for fiction or for poetry. When you're reading a novel, when you're reading a poem, when you're reading Paradise Lost, um, then you are an individual who is reading this, and you are thinking about the work being written for an individual. When you're reading drama, you have something of a choice as to whether to think 
of the audience, that is what we call the audience, which is closer to the narratee than to some real audience. Whenever we talk about the audience, we're actually imagining an audience for a play. In fact, reading plays is a really helpful way to understand the idea of the narratee, because when you read a play, you think about the audience. But when you're reading a play, you're not part of the audience. So if you write a paper and you say, oh, the reader is struck by how noble Satan is, you might mean that you're struck, or you might mean that the narratee is struck. And the word, the phrase, the reader, which is overused by people in literary criticism, um, is one that's ambiguous between the narratee, that is, let's say, the person sitting on his couch reading the Balzac novel in front of his fire before um, going out um, on, in his carriage to rattle down the streets of Paris. That's one reader of Père Goriot, male and white and living in Paris in the first half of the 19th century. Um, another reader of Père Goriot is you. Um, if you talk about the narratee, though, the narratee is the male white reader that Balzac is talking about, talking to, describing even, in his own novel. Um, the, so the narratee is the person over whose shoulder you read, again, to say that. Um, but frequently we think we're supposed to be the narratee. That we, yeah, we do read over the narratee's shoulder, but we know what the reader is supposed to think. That is to say, we know what we're supposed to think. And part of what I've been pressing in this course is no, you know you're not supposed to think the same thing the narratee is. The narratee is a separate and fictional being from you. When you talk about the audience of a play that you're reading, you don't tend to confuse yourself with that audience. You might imagine what it would be like if you were seeing this play performed, and then you might imagine what it would be like to be a member of the audience. But the very idea of the audience is something that presses you farther towards thinking about the narrative. But the other thing about the audience is that audiences are plural. Um, it's never right to talk about how the audience responds to things. What happens is different parts of an audience will respond differently. Um, in a comedy, some people will laugh earlier than others, and some people won't laugh at all. In a tragedy, some people will be distraught at what happens to a tragic character, and other people won't be that sad, which makes it all the sadder. And the fact that there are differing reactions in an audience is a fact about audiences that it always pays to remember. So um, we can't quite talk about the audience. We can talk about an audience. And when we're talking about a play like this, which is, if not about a clash of cultures, is certainly about um, an interface between cultures. Um, and talking about a play like this, which Shoyinka himself directed in Chicago and directed in England, when we're talking about a place like this, the question of audience is a pluralized question. Hannah. Um, two questions. The first is, why is the narrative? Say that again. Why are we separate Again, because if you read, this is something of such crucial importance that I'm going to say it again in some detail. Whenever you're reading a book, um, you are never the person, for whatever reason, you are never the person that the author was thinking of when they wrote the book. You can't, unless the author is like your mother. Um, you can't be because the author doesn't know you, doesn't know who you are. Um, the author writes for an abstract person generally, for an abstract person. Um, and what we do when we're reading is we are reading over the shoulder of that abstract person. We are, you know, just think of what it's like um, to know the ending of a book, if you're the kind of person, or, you know, you get a spoiler, so you know what happens at the end of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd to talk about one of the most famous books you should not get, have spoiled for you. Um, Agatha Christie's great, uh, great Hercule Poirot mystery, uh, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Um, so if you already know what's going to happen, if you haven't um, 
um, kept from yourself what's going to happen, um, then even though it's spoiled, you can still see what's good about a mystery like that by reading it, remembering what it would look like to someone for whom it hasn't been spoiled. Um, that is, um, and in some ways you can even enjoy it more because you can see all the very, very subtle tricks that Christie is using to prevent her reader or her narratee or the person who hasn't had the story spoiled to prevent that narratee from understanding um, what is actually going on, to misdirect the narrative. If you think about something like the end of Sixth Sense, what happens at the end of Sixth Sense, which I won't spoil for you, is that, how many people have seen it? Okay, well all the crucial scenes at the end of Sixth Sense, don't spoil it for anyone, all the crucial scenes at the end of Sixth Sense um, that we have misunderstood while we're watching the movie get replayed for us very, very rapidly with our new understanding. And so what happens is, at the end of the movie, we see what was really happening in those scenes which we'd misunderstood while the movie was unfolding. And um, now we have to understand our own misunderstanding. So what's happened at the end of Sixth Sense is it's as though our earlier self is the person who saw such and such a scene and thought this was what was going on, but our later self knows how our earlier self misunderstood that scene. So the earlier self is the self that, was, that that scene was for as a movie scene. The scene was done the way it was done so that our earlier self would think what our earlier self thought, and now our later self is watching over the shoulder of our earlier self when that happens. Now, if you read a science fiction novel, as I say, this may be the most obvious example of this. If you read a science fiction novel, any decent science fiction novel will refer to technology that doesn't exist. That's what makes it at least hard science fiction. That's what makes it hard science fiction, is that there'll be references to technology that doesn't exist. Um, in order for that science fiction novel to be even remotely realistic, characters will talk about that technology with familiarity. And so too will the narrator. The narrator will say something like, um, the endoplasmic defibrillator was on the blink, um, and that was unfortunate because it meant we had to move to impulse engines um, since there wasn't enough unobtainium around. Um, you know, so that kind of um, BS science fiction, that's what we were looking at when we were looking at um, the beginning of um, the um, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Um, that is, there's a lot of vocabulary there, which you couldn't look up in a dictionary the way you could if you were reading um, some highly realistic present day novel or a 19th century novel. You might be reading, I had this experience actually reading a Jules, a Jules Verne novel in French, um, which was um, a novel about sea voyaging. Um, and there were all sorts of descriptions of different kinds of ships and boats and so on, and it was all in French. And so I kept looking up these French terms. And um, you'll know what they were, but have you ever tried reading English like Moby Dick or anything like that? Yeah, so if you read about a frigate, then you look it up, right? In French, and it's a galliette or something, right? Is that what it is? Yeah, it could be. That's the point. <laughs> so it could be a galliette. I was reading about, I was reading Les Sphinx des Glaces, and so there was notre galliette, you know, was going through the storm or whatever. And I thought, what's a galliette? I need to know. So I looked it up, and the French English dictionary said, frigate. And then I thought, okay, now I know. And then I realized, no, I don't. I have no idea what a frigate is, except that it's a friggin' ship with sails. But I already knew that about the French word. It was just a more familiar word to me. So if I really, really wanted to know, if I was writing a paper for English 1A or something and really, really needed to know the difference between a frigate and a schooner, I would, I would look it up. But 
I never have. I still don't know the difference between a frigate and a schooner. I don't really know the difference between a, a foxhole and, and a, I don't know. I don't know what a, what a boson does. I, I know in physics it makes the universe possible, but I don't know what a boson does on a ship. Um, so these are all things that I don't know, but I know that a 19th century reader of Moby Dick knows what they are. You know, they're ships. That's all I need to know about it. So if you read science fiction, you're getting fake words like that, that a 26th century reader would know what they are. And so what's happening is you're not saying, oh my goodness, I don't know what the endoplasmic defibrillator is, and I've just made that up from you know, biology and medicine. It's some combo of endoplasmic reticulum and um, rough endoplasmic reticulum and a defibrillator, but so what? Um, I don't know what they really are or what that would be. It's, it's a complete nonsense term. But I assume the narratee, the 26th century reader of this 26th century science fiction novel would know what that was. And that's all I need to know is that the narrator is addressing someone whose vocabulary is um, the same as the narrator's that the narrator is not addressing, the author is addressing me in the 21st century, but the narrator is addressing a 26th century reader, just as a 19th century narrator is addressing a 19th century reader. And sometimes a 19th century narrator will address a 21st century reader in 19th century science fiction. Um, and that 19th century narrator will get the 21st century totally wrong. Mary Shelley writes a novel set in the year 2000. Boy, does she get it wrong. Um, Edward Bellamy writes a novel set in the year 2000. Boy, does he get it wrong. But in all those cases, I'm not the same person as the narratee, and no living reader is. There is no reader. In science fiction, it's absolutely the case that no living reader ever in the future or in the present, could be the narratee of that science fiction. So we assume a reader, and we think, oh, this is our fault, but it's not. This is essential to how literature works, is we assume in fiction that there is a reader who will understand as though it were simply clear-cut fact everything that the narrator is saying. But we are not that reader, and we don't expect to be that reader. Um, one thing that that reader will believe in a fictional work, this is why it's essential to fiction, one thing that reader will believe is that what's being said is true. That is, the narratee of a fictional work doesn't know that it's a fictional work. The narratee of the fictional work belongs to the fictional world. That's why a fiction writer can refer to some nonsensical device or contraption, and the narratee would know what that nonsensical device or contraption is, even though it's so fictional as not to have any definition at all. Yeah? So if we're writing like an essay on like the exam, instead of saying reader, should we say narrator? I'm not, I don't think we're going to fuss much, but it's, um, but yes, um, the answer is yes. Generally, um, you should use the reader when you actually mean a real person um, and not, um, not a um, projected person. Book reviewers often talk about the reader too, and they really shouldn't. It's always annoying when you read a book review and you know someone like Michiko Kakutani says, oh, and the reader finds herself bored by all these descriptions of um, Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever. Um, and then what she's saying is, I find myself bored. Um, but the reader is already abstract even if a real person, she's talking about you who might buy this book or might not, um, the narratee is only is something created by the work and is therefore um, in, has the same relation to the, author, to, the, to the real reader, you, sitting there reading it, getting up, getting a Coke, um, checking your Facebook 
um, page because you've read another two sentences and now you get to check Facebook again. Um, that's not what narratees do. That's what real readers do. Um, so the narratee has the same relation to the real reader as the narrator has to the real author. And um, that's, we, we know that distinction. That's a distinction that we're well aware of, narrator and author. Um, there is an exactly symmetrical relationship between narratee and reader. The only difference being the narratee is usually not mentioned. Whereas authors will, they are the ones who are saying the sentences. I mean, excuse me, narrators are the ones saying the sentences we're reading. Um, Narratees are the ones reading those sentences. Authors are making narrators say those sentences. We readers are reading those sentences that the narratees are reading. The sentences are interesting because the narratees are reading them. And just as the sentences are interesting because the narrators are saying them. When we look at the author's note, what a segue. Come on, applaud that. When we look at the author's note to Death and the King's Horseman, um, then we're looking at what the author has to say, not what the narrator. Yeah? So is it possible that in our research papers, when we're discussing like, the, the art behind creating certain fictions or essays or whatever, would it be more appropriate to say the reader because we're talking about, let's say, the way Ellison constructs things such, as, such that his readers think it as opposed to... Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, that is to say, for example, you would say that a reader expects a rhyme, for example, whereas a narrative might not, um, in, in exactly the same way. Um, as I say, in plays, maybe it's, it's the idea becomes, it's is even all the more obvious because in plays there don't tend to be narrators as such. We know that plays are narrated. Um, in some sense, which is to say that they are arranged and put together in the way that they are in order to tell a story. But the implicit narration of it, well, we talked about this a little bit in Waiting for Godot. Um, the narrator of Waiting for Godot, which is a play, um, is the person who writes the speech prefixes and the um, stage directions. So the we know that Estragon is named Estragon not from watching the play, but because the narrator of that play has given um, Gogo the speech prefixes Estragon. Um, we know that the narrator is actually kind of funny because there are stage directions like um, Gogo says, use your intelligence, can't you? And then the stage direction is Vladimir uses his intelligence. And that's just a stage direction. It's not anything the audience is going to understand. Um, it's a stage direction that the narrator is giving. So again, it tends to be the case that when we talk about the audience, we don't confuse the audience with ourself. Notice the singular there, ourself. We don't tend to confuse the audience with ourself. We talk about how other people are responding. Um, we talk about what other people find funny, how other people are reacting. Now, when you have a play like this, it's um, interesting to think about what the audience or what the narratees um, that the play is projecting who they would be. And the three basic choices, there are obviously more, and it's important that there are more, um, and we could say there's a fourth choice, which is all the other possibilities. But the three basic choices are a mainly or entirely white audience, um, Western, that would be, American or European, a mainly or entirely black audience, which then might mean African, but wouldn't necessarily mean African, um, or a mixed audience, which could mean a mixed audience within Africa, or a mixed audience not within Africa. Um, what would you say, just based on the play, what would you say um, the projected audience for this play is? Or if you have other possibilities, say what they are. Look, it's easy to say, for example, that The Merchant of Venice, just to give you a very easy example. The Merchant of Venice 
is written very much for a white English audience. It's imagining a white English audience in which there are no Jews. Um, that's absolutely the case of The Merchant of Venice, is that the audience for The Merchant of Venice contains no Jews. King Lear um, is indifferent to whether there are Jews in the audience, but again, it's written for a white English audience, possibly with a few French people in it, but for a white English audience. Um, it's very easy to tell what the audience of King Lear is, even if you don't belong in any way to that audience. Um, it's very easy to tell what the audience for The Merchant of Venice is. Paradise Lost, it's not so easy because Paradise Lost is written to all human beings um, and isn't nearly so restricted as far as narrative goes. Paradise Lost is written to people in all languages, although it's in English. The fact that it's in English is not part of the meaning of the poem. In fact, the poem itself would be presumably in Hebrew if Milton were asked, or if its narrator were asked, what language is this poem in, the answer would either be Hebrew or Greek. Milton says English, but the poem would say Hebrew or Greek. That might seem a weird thing to say, but I think it's true. Um, whereas King Lear is absolutely a play in English. Um, Julius Caesar, what language does that play take place in? Latin, presumably. Um, yes, and do you, have you read it, Taylor? Yeah. Uh, what do you mean, of course? Oh, okay. So there's a place in Julius Caesar where one of the characters says, ages unborn in accents yet unknown will retell our story. So there's a character in English on an English stage saying, in the future, People will tell this story on a stage in some country that doesn't exist yet in a language that hasn't been invented yet, by which he means England in the 16th century. So obviously he can't be saying that in English because he says one day there'll be a new language in a new country where people will perform this play. And in the play he's saying that in Latin in 44 BC um, in for the, for the watchers of the play, he's saying it in English in 1596. Um, so again, those are distinctions to be made. So what about Death and the King's Horseman? Yeah? I think it's supposed to be a Olunde. Mm -hmm. um, I believe. I'm not absolutely certain, but I'm 90% certain. And also members of the audience who should identify with mm -hmm. Okay. So um, I guess my question is, can you possibly think well of Pilkings? Here's another thing the author's note says, that... Um, one of the more obvious alternative structures of the play would be to make the district officer the victim of a cruel dilemma. So the district officer is Pilkings. And so one of the more obvious, which means I'm certainly not going to do it, one of the more obvious alternative structures of the play would be to make the district officer the victim of a cruel dilemma. This is not to my taste. And it is not by chance that I've avoided dialogue or situation that would encourage this. No attempt should be made in production to suggest it. Um, so what he's basically saying is don't imagine this as a play which is about um, Pilkings having a hard time making a choice. Don't make this in any way a play about his feelings, his anxieties, his um, interiority when faced with the situation that he's faced with. Um, and he's an idiot. Um, you know, as I say, pretty much all the whites in the play are idiots. Um, if you thought that they were too um, two-dimensional, too absurd as characters, 
Um, that's that is. I don't think it's a. It's a. Um, I don't think it's finally a telling critique of this play, um, but it could be one. It would be a legitimate thing to bring up, which is to say what you have in this play is one set of characters who are really, really amazing, who bear comparison to Shakespearean or to Greek drama, um, characters whose dilemmas, whose situations, um, whose interactions occur at a level of depth that we haven't really seen in Western drama after Shakespeare, um, but that um, Shoyinka is completely bringing back. You might say to yourself, compared to Waiting for Godot, which, one of, which was one of the comparisons, so compared to Waiting for Godot, um, this play is so much more elemental that Waiting for Godot, in a way, is at one end of what drama does, which is to get rid of everything and to be about nothing. And a play like this, um, something like Oedipus Rex, to which it, it, it should be compared, um, a father-son rivalry and hatred and disaster that occurs on a cosmic scale, um, stands at the very opposite end of the history of drama, when drama was the most important thing in a culture's life, as or one of the most important things in a culture's life, as it was in ancient Greece, as it is in certain um, cultural situations to which drama belongs. Um, in um, Yoruba culture, that what we are being brought to face here is something like why drama could matter as something way beyond entertainment, why its stakes could be mortal, um, why the fact that um, Ellison dies, why the fact that Olinda dies is not just, oh, that's interesting, that was a good story, um, but was something that is of absolute centrality to what's being described here. And then there are these clueless white people um, who are just idiotic, who put on costumes for a masked ball because for them they're just costumes, because they don't have ritual meaning, because they don't um, have any sense, because the white people don't have any sense that these things are life and death and afterlife um, uh, implements. Um, and it's not that they do these stupid things, it's that they have no idea that there is something other than stupidity um, that really marks the white characters in this play. And if you felt um, that the white characters in this play, you know, you might feel gratified that white characters are being treated um, so two-dimensionally, or you might feel, okay, yeah, but that's really a little bit unfair. Um, and, or you might feel both. Um, and I think those are all legitimate responses, but I also think it's important that Shoyinka doesn't want that to be what this play is about. To compare it again to um, 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 to Achebe, um, to Things Fall Apart, um, Achebe, some of you know, do any of you know what um, he thought about Heart of Darkness, Conrad's novel Heart of Darkness? Is this something familiar to people? Do you know, Maxie? I don't remember if this is correct, but I think he did not like it. He hated it. Yeah, he hated it. He gave a famous commencement address at Amherst about um, how terrible Heart of Darkness was. How many people have read Heart of Darkness? So if you read Heart of Darkness, if you want to defend Heart of Darkness, what you would say, the standard defense of Heart of Darkness is something like this. For those of you who don't know it, it's, it's what Apocalypse Now is based on. Um, and for those of you who don't know Apocalypse Now, if you've read Heart of Darkness, there's a movie version called Apocalypse Now, uh, directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring uh, Charlie Sheen before he was president. Excuse me, Martin Sheen, not Charlie Sheen. Martin Sheen, before he was president. Um, and before Charlie Sheen was even a gleam in his eye. Um, and Marlon Brando is Mr. Kurtz. And if you know who Mr. Kurtz is from T.S. Eliot's The Hollow Men, Mr. Kurtz, he dead. That's a line from Heart of Darkness. So Heart of Darkness is a novel in which essentially Western characters, um, Western European English characters, um, go into the heart of Africa to find out what human beings are really like.
And what they discover by going into the heart of Africa is that um, human that humanity is a very, very cruel, terrible, um, frightening, and impossible uh, way of being in the world. That civilization puts a very thin veneer on this, that everything that is great about the civilized world, if it is great, everything um, that claims that we have um, transcended um, the, um, the elemental terribleness of being human, all of that is BS that um, what humans really, really are like is something true of all humans, um, European whites as well as African blacks, um, true of all humans, and it's terrible. Um, and so the, not the, the defense of Heart of Darkness goes like this, that you shouldn't see it as a racist novel and an imperialist novel, because what it's saying is that the imperial culture and white culture and so on is no different from African culture, um, and that what this novel shows you is the truth about all human beings. Ergo, it can't be racist. What Achebe is saying, um, and saying very, very powerfully, is actually that's wrong. Um, all peoples have culture. All cultures are cultures. It's not the case that you should look at black Africa and say, ah, that's what humans are really like and we're no different, which is what Conrad is saying. Um, what you will find in Africa is that before white colonizers came, they were very, very sophisticated, well-established, um, stable, powerful cultures that rivaled or exceeded in every way any other culture in the world, including Greek and Roman and English and European culture, um, and that it's only a projection of European self-absorbed narcissism that would see in Africa something like the other two culture, which is also what our culture is barely papering over. That is that if Africa, the heart of darkness, is the truth about what it is to be a human being, which is the Conrad version of things, um, then what that means is the heart of darkness stands for the fact that to be a human being is to be a savage, let's say, or is to live in a world of horror. And what Achebe is saying is, no, wrong, totally wrong. These are human cultures. Like all other human cultures, they're human cultures. Um, and to take them somehow as a standard or an image or an emblem of um, humans without the culture that we barely managed to hold together in our hypocrisy um, is simply to dismiss everything that is actually human culture there. Um, so the argument then um, between Achebe and Conrad is that Conrad, it's not that Conrad thinks, oh yes, European culture, it's so great, it civilizes the world, we must have it, um, but rather that um, culture, um, European culture is just as bad as African culture. That's what Achebe says Conrad is saying, um, which implies that African culture is bad. And that's what Achebe says is totally wrong about what Conrad is saying. So the thing about things fall apart is what happens is when um, the white culture, when the white imperialists, when the white um, industrialists show up, um, what they do is they destroy a perfectly wonderful indigenous culture. Um, and they do it through this clash of cultures, and it's a terrible thing. Whereas what Conrad is doing is showing how when whites try to 
um, go into the African context, they find that they are too weak and their own cultural desires are too weak to sustain the truth at the heart of darkness. So one sees what happens in sub-Saharan Africa as, um, as long, fully developed, sophisticated, um, highly amazing cultures, that would be Achebe, and the other sees Africa as the counter and contrary to all culture, and that would be Conrad, and that's what Achebe was um, objecting to, um, and quite rightly objecting to. Um, so in some sense, things fall apart is the narrative for things fall apart is very much people who like Conrad, people who like Heart of Darkness or people who've read Heart of Darkness, and then people who have um, experienced whether they are African or European, whether they are black or white, have experienced what it is that colonialist and imperial culture has done to an older African culture and now find themselves in a situation where things have gotten messed up, have gotten frigated up, have gotten schoonered up. Um, and um, so Things Fall Apart is very much, let's say, a post-contact. It's, it's about the disaster of contact for cultures that were um, perfectly complete perfectly well-developed, perfectly sophisticated, um, and the disaster that should be made known to all readers of that novel, of what that contact did, of what the misapprehensions of that, contract, of that contact did, what it did to people. Um, I don't think that's true of Death of the King's Horseman, and I guess what I want to say about it, since we won't have another class, um, is... Um, it's worth reading what Shoyinka says in um, some of the essays that are printed here. But Death and the King's Horseman is very much not, as he says at the very start, about a clash of cultures. What he says about um, Pilkings and, well, he says the colonial factor. The colonial factor is an incident, a catalytic incident merely. The confrontation in the play is largely metaphysical, contained in the human vehicle, which is a lesson and the universe of the Yoruba mind, the world of the living, the dead, and the unborn, and the numinous passage which links all, transition. Death and the King's Horseman can be fully realized only through an evocation of music from the abyss of transition. Now, what that means is that he's doing, which Achebe is not doing, he's doing a kind of anti-Conrad in this play, where Conrad uses Africa as a kind of backdrop um, for European self-discovery. It turns out that we are all um, savages, um, self-hating and hating each other, dancing over the abyss. That's what Conrad might be parodied as saying in Heart of Darkness. And it's Africa that teaches us Westerners that fact. Um, what Shoyinka is basically doing is saying these idiotic white people came around and they prevented a lesson from doing what it was that he was supposed to do, what it was that he was born to do. Now, if you think about it, and you don't really think about it till the end of the play, but if you do think about it, Lesson's task throughout his life as King's horseman was to die when the king died. He knew this all his life. His son knows that about himself all his life. There will be a new king, and Alinda will be the new king's horseman. His entire life is a lifetime preparing to die with the death of the king. If he predeceases the king, then his son will take over that task. And it is something that he, that he is willing to do. But what Shoyinka is saying is doing that, being willing to do it, being willing to be a tragic figure who is going to ride with the king 
to the other world, to the world of the ancestors, that what that does is it gives the community a sense that death is not final, that there is a world of the ancestors, that here is a privileged figure who is great because he will ride faster than horses and dogs to that other world. What Shoyinka says, he says this in one of the essays, and I think this is fascinating, is it's not true. Death is absolute nothingness, and fear of death is the absolute content of, or the absolute through line in all human life. And Allende can provide the community a place to put its fear of death, a way to see someone who supposedly knows more thinking death is not final, but he does think death is final. He doesn't believe in that afterlife. He may want to believe in it, he may believe he believes in it, but he doesn't. This play is about the finality of death. And Allende, given a chance to think that thought, a thought he doesn't want to think, given a chance to think, I don't have to face death yet, what the colonial presences have done is catalyzed for him a moment where he doesn't have to die, where he could choose to live and have an excuse for choosing to live. He embraces that, and that's why he's ashamed, because he has allowed himself to recognize the finality of death, that it does him no good to die, although it does the community a lot of good, temporary good, but a lot of good if he should die, does him no good to die. And as soon as he gets a glimpse of that, he faces death. That's catalyzed by the presence of the white characters, but otherwise they're of no interest. What is of interest here is a vast ritual to understand and take seriously and measure as deeply as humans can measure it, the fact that we confront death, measure it as deeply as humans can measure it, and attempt to deal with that undealable with fact. And we find out just how tremendous and awful that fact is because of the catalytic presence, just the catalytic presence of the whites who give Ellison a choice that he did not want. Because as soon as he has the choice, he avoids death. And only for a little while only for a couple of hours. Notice that like classic tragedy it takes place over 24 hours. Um, and so for a couple of hours he avoids death at the expense of shame and at the expense of um, not getting anything out of that avoidance except dying a couple of hours later. But what this is is a universal tragedy and a universal tragedy in which the whites are simply providing a background of stupidity which nevertheless makes possible a choice that the main character didn't really want to be able to have. Um, and that's a really deep and powerful thing. Okay, see you at the exam. Papers anytime between now and then. If you are reciting for either of us, you should be doing it in the next little while. Make appointments and um, come recite. <laughs>